I think we need more stories uh, about us from our own perspective. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, in, in living in, in the US our own experience. I think uh, some people can write it, but there is no better, you know, better person than just ourselves to, you know, okay, put that story out. And also, you mentioned uh, me writing about African cinema. Uh, we have, you know, if it's uh, African cinema and then you don't have African voices that bring our own perspective to yeah. reading uh, and uh, critiquing and um, producing knowledge about our, our, you know, our cinema, I think definitely something is lacking. Family, you are listening to Concrete Pastures. I am Nancy Mulemwasisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a platform to reach out to my fellow immigrants and dreamers. The goal is to provide a space for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We discuss issues that are important to us in the diaspora. We celebrate the joys, the laughs, the bravery that being an immigrant brings. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate your support. To all of our new listeners, welcome to the family. As you listen, please continue to support us by clicking the subscribe button and leaving us a review. We truly love hearing from you and our guests would love to hear from you as well. They would love to know what resonated with you and like their, their pages, send them a message feel free to reach out to our guests, please. A huge shout out to our FMG Radio for continuing to give us visibility on their platform. Let's continue to support them by tuning in to FMG Radio. On today's episode, I'm so excited to introduce you to our fellow immigrant, our fellow African, and he is coming from the world of cinema, the world of film, the world of writing books. And today we are going to touch a little bit on one of his recent books. I am excited to introduce you to Dr. Bukhari Sawadogo. Dr. Bukhari Sawadogo was born in Cote d'Ivoire to parents from Burkina Faso. He moved to the U.S. of A. to pursue graduate studies, earning a master's degree and a doctorate. He has lived and worked in different parts of U.S. of A., including the states of Iowa, Louisiana, Vermont, Massachusetts, and now New York City. As an African cinema scholar and media professional, Dr. Sawadogo Motifasted work seeks to give voice and presence to the film media production that developed outside of hegemonic paradigms of Hollywood cinema model. 
Dr. Sawadogo has published extensively on African cinemas with four single authored books on the subject, as he is the founding director of the Harlem African Animation Festival. Beyond film and media industry, Dr. Bokari Sawadogo's work is widening in scope and depth in to include a study of the encounters and the exchanges between Africa and the diaspora. In this respect, he has authored most recently the book Africans in Harlem, an untold New York story. As a writer, Dr. Sawadogo interrogates the place and trajectory of Africa today in the world through the diaspora. Please welcome Dr. Sawadogo. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. Happy to be here. Congratulations on all your achievements, by the way. And thank you for joining us from Paris, from France. I don't know if you're in Paris, but in France. So I know you're a New Yorker, but I appreciate you for joining us from France. My dream. One day. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. You know, okay. My pleasure to be here and to have a conversation with you, but also through you, the larger community that, you know, are listening and also watching you. Thank you so much. This is a two-part conversation. We wanted to give you, all of you amazing listeners in our diaspora, a treat. There's so many dreamers out there that are looking to move to the U.S., to move around the world. But today, uh, Dr. Sawadogo is going to be talking about his book. Of course, we're going to talk about his media, what his contribution is and what he's, where he sees, you know, Africa in terms of uh, cinema. But before we get into his book and all of that juicy stuff that he does, that's very interesting to all of us. I just want to get to know him a little bit from when he was in Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso. Yes. <laughs> my sister told me that. So I was like, oh, I'm going to use that. So um, before he, he left and how he got here. So we'll talk about his part as being a student when he came to the U.S. as well. So do you mind sharing with us how it was as a Burkina Bay in Burkina Faso? In Burkina Faso, I would say that um, I was born, you know, born in uh, Cote d'Ivoire to Burkina Bay parents. And um, as you may know, or, or your listener may know, there is a very large uh, immigrant or migrant um, uh, Burkinabe community in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, about 4 million. Mm. So who work on uh, in cocoa plantation. So um, I was born there to Burkinabe parents and uh, uh, there is this tradition of this practice uh, maybe uh, kind of present in other, other, other African countries where they say, you know what, for the firstborn son, we'll send him back to the village to live with his grandparents so that he will know the real life. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was sent uh, at, at four years old, I was sent uh, back to, to Burkina Faso, you know, sent to Burkina Faso to live with my grandparents. At four years old? Yes. Okay. So I can say that uh, after four years old, I've uh, never spent one year with my family, in my parents, my biological parents. So 
Um, so I did, you know, my elementary school, secondary school, and part of a university in in Burkina Faso. And after sophomore year, I got a scholarship, a competitive, a national competitive scholarship to go to Dakar, Senegal, where I completed a, a BA, a BA in applied foreign languages, which is tourism and business. Mm. And I was very excited, you know, what I got a degree, you know, okay, outside of the country. If I come back, I will get a very nice job, you know, we dream of this. Then I come back, I land back to Burkina Faso and it's like, wow, very tough even to get an, an internship. So um, I was again riding my bicycle that I rode many years ago, pick up that bicycle you know, riding around town trying to find uh, any job. So I ended up moonlighting, de- doing, um, to- being tourist guide, uh, English teacher, conference interpreter. I did a lot of things. I did a lot of things. And then uh, f- I think in my third year, returning from uh, Senegal, I passed the national competitive uh exam to be a diplomat so i completed the training and what was left is basically not good to be uh, posted uh, outside of the country and faith hearted that during my hustling my hustle years i'm still hustling even today <laughs> but when i came back from senegal and life was very tough i was also um, going to internet cafes. Now it's pretty easy. You have internet at home, but back then, you know, you yeah. have to go to internet cafe where I will, you know, usually free, you know, 200 CFA uh, francs an hour, which is the equivalent of about uh, 50 cents an hour, where I will go very quickly, do internet research about scholarships, about internship. Mm-hmm. assistantship at uh, American universities and I would go to the uh, American Cultural Center at that time. So I got the information, you know, from the internet and then I will go to, uh, you know, I don't have a computer, we'll go to those public sec- secretaries that type my, the letter in English full of you know, typos and yet I will send it out and, uh, uh, university sometimes will simply reject. I have I had admissions but without uh, scholarship. So given my background of maddens means I couldn't. So faith had it that as I was finishing my training to be a diplomat, I had also uh, an an, ad- an admission and a full scholarship to go to the US for graduate studies. So I was at a crossroad where, okay, I can go be a diplomat for Burkina Faso or I can go and, you know, pursue my graduate studies. And since I'm already here, you already know why, you know, what cloud. Yes, I chose. And I remember many people say that okay, this, this uh, guy must be crazy because we have never heard in this country someone who got the opportunity to be a diplomat just leave it behind and yeah. go be a student with no guarantee that he will succeed there but any that's you know that's my story you know Burkina Faso and how I ended up in the US 
Doctor, I applaud you because I would have taken, I don't know, being in your shoes, I think I would have taken the diploma way. But yeah. they go all over the world and then everything is paid for. You don't have to worry. Coming as a student, knowing what I know now. <laughs> yes. I, I think that, okay, that's also the part where I like about... Um, you know, I would say childhood, but it's more like young adulthood because we're still full of idealism. We want to pursue what we, what our dreams are. And for, at that time was like, I really want to go as far as I can in my studies to get a doctorate. That's yeah. it was. And uh, from where I'm, I am right now in my, you know, <laughs> in my age now, if you ask me, you know, okay, just leave everything and uh, I don't know, start scratch from somewhere. I would say probably no. <laughs> but I did it, you know, my very idealist younger self did it, yes. Oh, wow. So you get to the US. Where did you go? Where was your school? Uh, the, the school is uh, University of Northern Iowa, so in the state of Iowa. Oh, so that's where you started exactly like in your bio. It, yes, that, exactly. That I started with uh, a master's, and uh, that was in 2006. So 2006, 2008, I, you know, I did my master's in Iowa. And uh, to give you an idea, living uh, the Sahel zone, you know. Okay, How was there, that experience, living in, uh, on campus? And uh, once they accept you, before we go there, once they accept you, they... You go to the embassy and they give you a visa. Was it was that an easy process? Was it just seamless or no? No, I would say the actual process was easy, but emotionally it was draining. I can imagine. No, yeah, draining because you can imagine that. Okay, hey, this is this opportunity to go to the US to pursue your, your dreams. You know, to yeah. study. Mm-hmm. And uh, I received the I uh, the I twenty. Yeah. And the icon is, is the document you take to uh, the, uh, the embassy and also with the admission letter. And also, I was also offered an assistantship, which basically pays for everything. And at the end, also, I, I have a stipend, a monthly stipend. So I go to, uh, the, I go to the embassy and... Um, I, but I can tell you that prior to, you know, many weeks before that, I was praying, you know, okay. I'm like, and also, I'm like, I don't want to tell many people except my biological parents. I'm like, because if you go and fail, <laughs> what a shame. So that's something the emotional part was. Yeah. But yeah, when I went, I went in and then the counselor officer, you know, took my papers and he said, hey, you know, are you going to you know, you and I, University of Northern Iowa, and, you know, what course of study. And I will tell you, less than one minute, less than, we wow. just to, and just, you know, basically, you know, repeat by, hey, you know, you're going for, you know, you and I, for this course of study or master. I said, yes. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, you know, come back in the afternoon, you know, to get your visa. And I'm like, I'm walking out and I'm like, I'm not walking on water. Like, I don't want to see people see like the biblical, you know, yes, yes. Even on water. And I couldn't believe it. And, uh, well, you know, in the afternoon, I came back, picked up the passport and visa. 
And uh, I can tell you, and now I see picture, the image where I have put my my passport and uh, the citizenship letter and the admission letter under my bed. Before I go to bed, honestly, you know, I go to bed, I will open, you know, because the side of the bed to, to touch it. When I wake up in the morning, I did it for almost two months. Yes, <laughs> so that tells you. Uh, that's something, the emotional investment, that the actual process, you know, could very relatively smooth, but the yeah. emotional investment was very heavy, yes. Ah, I, I I can imagine. I can imagine you had two choices, and you picking the one that is like it's unknown. You, it, yeah, it's uncertain, it's and you don't know what to expect once you get here. So you get here. Um, are the tickets expensive from uh, Burkina Faso? Uh, the ticket it was, but for, for me, I couldn't take uh, France. Uh, I had to take Royal Air Maroc. I was told that cheaper. So okay. I have to, yeah. So I flew from Ouagadougou to Casablanca and from Casablanca to New York. That's it. Because I knew that, okay. And even that, I had to sell my motorbike. Because oh, wow. I was really hustling. I was able yeah. you know, to get a little money and then was able to buy my own motorbike and so ticket was you know i had to sell my motorbike to be able to purchase the ticket and when i got to new york a friend of mine was uh, generous enough to uh, you know go host me for three days and then i had to pay to purchase a greyhound ticket from new york to uh, iowa and i've never been to iowa how many days was that I know, I, I know, you know, at least 48 hours because I know we've spent uh, one night on the road. At one point, I remember we crossed Indiana and in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to see a lot of Indians here <laughs> because, you know, for me, I make, we can make Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. So at least, I've, you know, we, you know, 48 hours. And um, if you're familiar with the U.S. Greyhound buses, well, it takes you to everywhere. No, the and, Greyhound uh, buses are fast too also, like the way they yeah. move. They are, they are really fast. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So I don't, and then bus. Wow. Yes, and I didn't know nobody simply, you know, okay, I'm getting off. I remember Waterloo, Iowa. That's my uh, station where I'm getting off. And then uh, someone from the university, the international student office, was supposed to come and pick me up. Uh. But yeah, the rest, I know simply not to get off <laughs> before Waterloo, Iowa. That was it. Oh my gosh. You, you, you remind me of myself when I came to New York. Every time I got on either on the bus, like the MTA um, buses that we have, the local ones, mm-hmm. if I'm not, I don't know where I'm going, I'll tell the driver, this is where I'm going. Can you please just let me know that this is? And everybody has been so kind enough, like during my time of knowing where I was going, they'll shout out, hey, this is such and such. And then I'll come out. But yeah. I know the feeling of just being scared. Like you don't want to come out on the wrong stop and then you start <laughs> yeah. over. Uh, yeah. But um, you get to campus. Mm-hmm. How was the, how was that? I get to campus and 
Before coming, I had signed up for on-campus housing. Uh-huh. And I remember, I still remember everything clearly. It was in Bartlett Hall. Bartlett Hall. <laughs> that tells you how. Oh, so they all have like different names. Yeah, and that tells you after 15 years, I still remember all the details. It's supposed to be uh, Bartlett Hall. And um, I got there and I've been, I was told that oh, you got a little bit early because you have to wait for one more week for housing, you know, student housing to be available. And uh, I'm like, okay, but I'm here. And that's that, okay. But one thing, uh, one option is to um, change your application to uh, on-campus student housing. Mm. Because Bartlett Hall was undergraduates. And so... And that hour, you know, I switched my, uh, you know, application and then uh, uh, I was able to have something uh, on the day, you know, on campus student housing. So I moved to and I have a share the, uh, the, my roommate actually, that's the, the very comical part because my roommate was, act, it was also from Burkina Faso. We were, we were freshmen and sophomore students in the same department in Anglophone Studies. Whoa. But why we did not connect before? Because I, because everybody, if you are getting a visa going to the US and you are like, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this to myself. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, you know, you know propagating. Yeah, publicizing and he also not. And then I'm like, how likely is that to happen? So uh, he was, you know, my first uh, roommate. Uh, so from the same countries, from the same ethnic, whatever. So we stayed and, uh, and we are like, you know, okay, we are back together. So, and then, you know, okay, uh, on campus, uh, in my second year, I had my own, you know, the one bedroom and, and campus housing. And uh, on campus, you know, students that had a scholarship, uh, citizenship, I was supposed to teach uh, two classes in French and the French program. And that was the deal. So, so that I don't pay, I don't pay tuition and also I get a stipend. So as an international student, I'm not allowed to work off campus. And now, yeah. yeah, this is uh, my, this was uh, my only source of income. And if you work on campus, you cannot work more than 20 hours a week. So if you work on campus, what type mm. of job do you apply for? Like what type of jobs do they have outlined? Uh, what you have, um, you can, you can have uh, openings in the mail room. Okay. Which is really, but where most most students uh, get jobs are in the restaurant. Got it. Because um, you have a yeah, at least three restaurants on campus, and uh, yeah, the material about restaurants. I would say real restaurant be really uh, be very which I can accommodate you know more than a thousand a thousand students at a time. Oh wow. Yes, and uh, usually, yeah, if you come, you want, you know, first-timers, you know, if you want a job first-timers, doing dishes are the first one. So, yeah, I remember my second year, you know, doing dishes, and I'm like, I don't like this. 
and then you know you will ask you know to move into uh, uh, where you know in in the dining room where you can uh, you know serve or, mm-hmm. you know and I think I, I thought of myself that was kind of promotion that from the dish room I find myself you know being an assistant cook and doing the walk and uh, nice yeah thinking about it some of my students in the in French language classes will come at first I was like oh my gosh I just want to melt and, and disappear <laughs> <laughs> because I think the professor, you know, in a, in a cook, uh, you know, outfit. Yeah. But that, I'm, you know, I'm telling this because that's the um, the mentality, you know, when you just come. But you know, okay, but few years, you don't. Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. yeah. People, think, yeah, you will realize that you know everybody does it, and if you think highly of yourself, you know, okay, who cares? Yeah. So you know, just you know, roll up your sleeves and do what you have to do. So that's what I did uh, as on on campus. Job. How was the food? Because I mean, we come from uh, obviously our food is very different. The whole of Africa. I don't know what's your staple food in uh, for Bukinabes. For for us, it's mostly uh, staples. Mostly dishes are rice based and millet based. Mm. Yeah, so rice based and millet based. So, uh, so how was it here in America? Because for me, it took me a while to get used to the food, even though we kind of have like similar food, uh, foods that you can cook to your liking. But when you're in on campus, I I assume you eat whatever they are offering. No, actually, no, because. Well, I was in campus, but I could not afford the meal plan. Ah, yeah, because hey. yes, because if you are uh, on campus, usually tied into uh, tied into um, the housing, you ha- usually have meal plan, which is you know, okay, if you ask for meal plan, where you will have breakfast, uh, lunch, and dinner, you know. There's a price, you know, you have wait, to pay. Wait, 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 doctor. I thought that once you have everything, like your scholarship, your housing, your, I guess, your education, everything paid for. I thought that's also included in there. You had to find your way for your food? Oh, yeah. This, you know, the citizenship only pays for tuition. And um, they give you a monthly stipend. Even uh, you know the on-campus so housing. Explain what the monthly pay. stipend is. A mm-hmm. monthly stipend is what? Uh, I remember it's eight hundred uh, something, eight hundred something a month. So that's like your monthly allowance. Yes, and uh, the two-bedroom apart- apartment were four twenty-five. So my roommate and I, so each one, you know, you know, fork about two hundred twenty-five for the apartment, and then utilities, uh, we kind of split our cost. So, which means I am so confused. You pay for utilities too? Yes, on campus. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. No, I because th- we be, wow. because we were in. Uh, um, graduate student uh, housing so if it ah. were in a dorm we yeah. wouldn't all right because we were not i was not in a dorm i was in a uh, 
graduate housing would spread like okay. understood understood yeah. i guess because of uh, that I, I assumed it was like more like a boarding uh school but mm-hmm. okay so graduate housing is a little bit different you pay for everything the yeah, house, utilities like you would, but cheaper compared to renting a house. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, really. But if you are working on, uh, you know, at the restaurant, one of the restaurant, uh, yeah, you are allowed to have a meal. Oh. During your shift, but if you, if not, if you're going to go in, you'll have to pay for it. And as I give you already, you know, the $800. Uh, and then if you deduct all the, my, my expenses, nothing is left. So I cannot afford to. So what I end up, I ended up doing is uh, simply, you know, buy groceries and cook, you know, at home. So. Wow. This is very interesting. Like I'm learning a lot. So, um, you come here. What happens to like health insurance? Do you have health insurance included in those uh, fees? Because I mean, uh, things can happen when you come here and or wherever you decide to go in the world to go for school. Is health insurance included? Yes, as part of your yes, health insurance is included uh, at the cost. The cost is uh, was covered by the citizenship. But I cannot tell you by you know the amount because it's been many years. Yeah, it was covered. It was covered. But luckily, no, it's I'm good to know that that's covered because I think that's something that's important. And uh, for me, I would think about that. Like, is my health insurance included uh, in case I get sick or something? Because you come into a whole new country. There's a lot of things that you might not agree with. Your body might react a certain way. The air, the food. So you want to have something just for in case. Adjusting to a new country is a lot. Any differences in culture that you that shocked you when you were on campus? And uh, did you feel at any point uh, felt maybe discriminated against you and Iowa? So it's far from a lot pretty white if you want to say it yeah yeah uh, yeah, it's pretty white it's pretty white yeah yeah Yeah, 95 percent yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, on campus i personally did not uh, experience discrimination uh, overtly sadly also may happen but you know okay but not out of the system you know okay maybe you know, for someone who simply, you know, I've never seen a black person or never interacted with a black person, sure that uh, maybe at first they will be a little bit resistant. But, you know, but, you know, racism, no, no. Oh, that's good. That's yes. Good. So, um, yeah, so we, discrimination on campus, no. So, um, if anything, you know, okay, maybe, you know, you might be a source of curiosity when, you know, you go off campus. But yeah. Yeah, because, I've, you know, uh, I was surprised, I, you know, looking back that, you know, many students and even uh, staff members at the time who, you know, have, had never visited, like, New York. Yeah. Or, you know, at that time. So for me, it's like, 
you know, because you coming in, I thought everybody in the U.S. went to the big city, took the uh, planes to everywhere. Mm. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's good. That, that, that's a good experience. Um, I asked this because of a lot of us do experience it, whether it's New York or whatever state that you go into, but it adds a different layer of difficulty when you go through it because we are not taught how to handle it. Yes, but yeah, that was uh, that's uh, Iowa, but I wouldn't say that the other state where I wouldn't say that the other state uh, where I've lived and studied that I did not experience some forms of um, simply discrimination. You know, yeah. discrimination. Yeah, so got it. Um, I know I was homesick when I first came here. I, I mean, of course, you don't, you don't have your friends like you have back home. You don't have your immediate family. How did you do with being homesick? Because that was big for me. I don't know. I would maybe surprise you and your listeners and viewers. I was not really not homesick. Maybe I was like, I wanted, you know, to pursue, uh, I wanted to pursue uh, my studies up to the doctorate level. And also, as I said, you know, earlier, you know, you know, very early, I left my family at four years old. So, yeah. so I got used to not being around my family. So for me, it was like kind of just an extension of what I've been used to. Yeah. You, so, uh, you, you, you're my second guest that actually has this. I spoke to uh, Muma and Muma was like, no, I was very excited to be in the UK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was an escape for me. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not the first one. So with, with that, I'm, I'm, I'm not shocked. I was homesick for like maybe six months or something like that. And then after that, I was just, I just got used. Because boarding school got me used to not having my mom around. No. Yeah, and my family all the time. So I guess you get you get used to your your upbringing, just mm-hmm. detects on how I guess you behave as an adult and how you go about life. Uh, in a lot of cases, anything you want to share of uh, being a student before we dive into your book and cinema and every this lovely stuff. Yeah, what I, I would say that what shocked me as a student, whether at a MA or a PhD level, is uh, the amount of reading, the reading assignment that we had to do. Because back home in Burkina Faso uh, and also in Senegal, uh, you know, at the university level, we were not assigned a lot of, a lot of reading, if any. Mm. Rarely, the professor will come in, you know, sign articles or even books to read. You know, back home, the professor will come and, you know, dictate and you write until your fingers hurt. So, and, uh, you know, the amount of reading, the sheer amount of reading for me was uh, initially challenging. And you have to find what are your reading technique to be able to cope with the amount of reading. And also um, the responsibility that I was uh, carrying as a teaching assistant, because in Iowa, you know, I just came in and uh, you know after what was a two-day workshop, and then I'm thrown into the classroom teaching two classes a week, two classes a week to undergraduate with very little. Uh, I would say 
preparation in terms of, you know, the culture, how, because those are undergraduate. If you know the culture, you will be able to relate, you know, to relate to them, you know, to relate to them or have them be more interested in the material because if you just can't just talk in a very dry manner, there is no really engagement. So it's, and also at the PhD level also, I was, you know, teaching as a TA, teaching assistant. So you have balancing you, uh, your own work as a student and also taking the responsibility as a teacher. Uh, that was something that was challenging, but was able to to pull it together. Wow, I can't imagine because you guys work um, speak British English or what language? Uh, what English do you speak in uh, Burkina Faso? Burkina Faso, we are uh, French-speaking French. country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no English. No English. How did you learn your English? I learned English. I know I'm being American now, so no, 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 no. I simply know it's in secondary school. It's it's in secondary school. Because really... I'm, I'm trying to put together like how that challenge was for you to come in and then teach a class after two weeks. And I know the the, the level of English here is very different. Like in the new ones and how we pronounce certain things, they pronounce it very different. So I can't imagine. What, no, what helped me is um, I did uh, my in Burkina Faso. Uh, I do I did two years in the Department of Anglophone Studies, so which is you know studying uh, English and uh, you know Anglophone literature. Okay. So and when I went to Dakar, I pursue I continue uh, English and I added German. So for me, I had that already background. Before coming to oh. the US, so you but can still, speak German too? I used to be very good at German more than English. But when I moved oh. to I moved here, I lost everything because I remember my first job in Vermont. I there were we needed one German teacher for uh, one hundred one and one hundred two, and I volunteered. I taught it for one semester. That tells you that I was you know even when I moved to the US, I was very good. But yeah. now, after many years, kind of lost it. Yes. Yeah. This language, like you did practice every day. Like I'm losing my own language. Like people ask me, I'm like, I don't know anymore. Because <laughs> I don't get to speak it every day. And plus, in my mom's house, we actually spoke a lot of English than our language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you didn't have any challenges with any language, language barrier or anything. You didn't have that. That's good. No, no, no. For me, no. Oh, great! So, it was more work on myself to do more work to yeah. to be able to catch up, uh, but I was but I was able to cope with it successfully. Got it. So fast forwarding, you've been to Iowa, Louisiana, Vermont, Vermont Massachusetts, and then New York. Mm-hmm. How did you get to New York? What got you to move to the big city? Uh, I got to New York uh, because at one point, because I, you know, I was in Vermont, and at one point I'm like, yeah, you know, that was my first tenure track job, and um, I thought that I needed to, you know, okay, to go to somewhere, somewhere else. And I get on the job market, and uh, there was an opening. Uh, 
at uh, the City University of New York uh, on the campus of City College. So I applied and uh, after the different uh, stages of recruitment, I was offered the job. So that's how I ended up in New York. Nice. That's a really great college. I tried to apply there. I was not accepted, so I went to Hostels College. But uh, mm-hmm. I was good. It was cheaper for me to go to Hostels. <laughs> no, City College is one of the top uh, colleges in New York, so it's r- really good college. It's a four-year college, right? Yeah, it's a four-year college. Yeah, yeah. we're in CUNY system. Yeah. And um, so we're going to talk about your book. And how did you get to write this book? I love how you describe Harlem and actually even painting a picture, like almost giving us a map of exactly where Harlem is. I was shocked. I was like, wow, this is great writing right here. Um, how did you get to write this book? What, what motivated you? What inspired you to write this book? What inspired me to write the book is simply being in Harlem because I would not have written this book if I wasn't in Harlem. And for me, it's simply the first, uh, the fall 20, 2015 when I moved to Harlem from Boston, the shock was, I'm like, I know Harlem is about African-Americans, Black Americans, but how come you have a lot of Africans here? Yes. Yeah, because, you know, you walk with It street, feels like home. It feels, it feels like, like home. Yeah. I people speaking my own, you know, native language yeah. more. Right? Yeah. You know, other West African languages, you know, any other, any food you want from yeah. back home, you have it. You, you know, you have the African market. And I'm like, but, but I'm, I was thinking to myself, but from outside, you don't have this image of this idea of Harlem having a very large and dynamic African communities. Yeah. So for me, was that was the point, you know, the starting point. And I'm like, you know, okay, there is a more nuanced and complex Harlem uh, story that needs to be told. So that's how I got started writing this book. For anybody who's been listening to us, um, the book, the name of the book is Africans in Harlem, an untold New York story. Yes. I and you can get this book as we continue to talk about this book right now, anywhere. If you have an iPhone like me, I bought the book already on iBooks. It's great. You can start reading with us. Amazon, um, anywhere. Amazon, yeah. everywhere where books are sold. It's mm-hmm. there. For There's a lot of writers that listen to this podcast. I just want to get into your spirit of writing. How long mm-hmm. does it take you to write the book? Because I do, uh, when I do my solo episodes, I dive into my memory and write out my script, even though I don't follow it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I write it out and I'm tired after that. I can't imagine writing a whole book. How, um, what's your process? And how long it took you to write this book? Uh, from the idea of a book to, uh, you know, the print copy, I say six years. Six I years. I would think it would take less because you, this is your fourth book. 
No, yeah, you know, like six years, but simply I don't, I, I don't work on one book at a time. Usually I'm struggle between two books at a time. Yes, because, because this came out, you know, you know, less than two, two months ago, but yeah. in between I've already published two other books. Yeah. So which, you know, okay, as I was working on this book, I was working, I've worked on two other books at the same time. And maybe as I was, um, you know, we're having this interview, I have a book coming out in September, no, no, in December, December 9th. And there is another one that I'm already halfway through. Oh, my God. So, so, you know, just to say, okay, in terms of how I work is, um, you know, work on different, uh, at least two projects at the time, because I'm very cognizant of the fact that. The book takes a lot. It takes a lot of time to, so I don't want to wait six months, you know, six years to just, you know, after, you know, for for a book to come and then it never six, we don't have that long a life. Is this depends on like the content of what you're trying to put in each book on how fast you write it? Is that what it is? Yeah, for me, it's more about the, you know, the content. It's more about the content because with this book, uh, it's true that he has a personal dimension. Me as uh, you know, Harlem might living and work in Harlem, yeah. but also has a very research component because I went out to interview, uh, uh, to do interviews in the community, yeah. and also I did archival research at the Schomburg Center, at the Riverside Church, and also at other venues. So, which means that, you know, to get the information uh, from time. archival, it takes time. And then once you have everything, then you have the writing and then the editing. Yes. Wow. Um, do you have any inspiration that, like when you write your books, because you wrote about Harlem, now you write it, you're going to be releasing yeah. on December 9th. He has another book coming out. So be on the lookout. I follow him on LinkedIn make sure we oh, let's show him some love let's follow him on linkedin so this way we can participate yeah. buy the book once it comes out but what inspires you in terms of writing all these different books at different times or together even because i thought i was weird when i was doing the last episode for the first season I was working, I think, on three episodes at the same time, writing. But there was mm -hmm. one that just connected to me that I wanted to release right now. And then the other two, I'm still working on. But I felt it very weird. I'm like, why am I doing the three together? But it's how my brain was operating at the time. Yeah. For me, is. uh uh, I think it's self-reflective. I'm, you know, I started thinking about it. What's really, you know, driving me uh, to that this production? And for me, I came to a conclusion that is simply a sense of urgency to have um, African voices on a number of subjects that affects us. I love for, it. For me, it's it, it's that because. Um, uh, if you take this book, uh, I think we need more stories uh, about us from our own perspective. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, in, in living in, in the U.S. our own experience. I think uh, some people can write it, but there is no better, you know, better person than just ourselves to 
you know, okay, put that story out. And also, we, you mentioned uh, me writing about African uh, cinema. Uh, we have, you know, okay, if it's uh, African cinema and then you don't have African voices that bring our own perspective to yeah. reading uh, and uh, critiquing and um, producing knowledge about our, our, you know, our cinema, I think definitely something is lacking. And that's why I'm very critical of myself, but also with, uh, I wouldn't want to see the whole continent because, um, like, we, we are here talking about, uh, you know, African cinema, African film studies, but there is, as of now, how many, you know, degree program, degree granting program we have on African cinema on the continent. I, w- I would say zero. So that tells you, uh, you know, okay. And for this, you know, come back to this, like I said, um, what's drive me is, um, it's, re- as I explained in the introduction of this book, we can uh, look at the, the place and the trajectory of Africa in the world today through different lenses. And one of the lens we can look at is the diaspora, the new diaspora. Yeah. What is the place and the trajectory of Africa today in the world? Uh, yeah, looking at the, the diaspora can give us uh, some some insights. Yeah, no, the book is well written. Reading through it, for me who lives in New York, I know I've been to Harlem many times. I go to eat and. Even when they have festivals, like um, they have uh, this African Day, um, everything displayed of Africa, uh, whatever you want to buy, it's like you, you're just home. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked like one year ago because our staple food is, is in Shima. It's cornmeal uh, made into like a hard porridge. I go there and they were selling it on the street. I was like, oh my God. And the, the gentleman with the restaurant was telling me, yes, this is in Shima. I've been to Zambia. This is where you are. I'm like, wow. It was shocking. And, but I was also appreciative of what um, Harlem and New York has to offer when it comes to diversifying and uh, to, I guess the migration of all of, all of us. Mm-hmm. And we we're bringing our culture here. It's uh, you get to appreciate it on a whole different level. Um, I plan to actually take my kids to now. My daughter is um, older; she can understand. Um, I took her one year. She loved it. She had face painting and all of that, but she was just in love with everything. The drums they were playing drums, the African drums. It was beautiful. Um, but I just love how Harlem has transformed into almost like Africa, because you find everybody from everywhere. Yes, I think uh, that's a very complex and nuanced story of Harlem today, which um, a very uh, thriving African presence and uh, what sometimes get, uh, doesn't get told enough is how uh, African immigrants have uh, contributed culturally and economically to yeah. the revival of Harlem because we think of Harlem automatically, we have to sit Harlem with the Harlem Renaissance, the, the heydays of Harlem, but we sometimes forget that between the 70s and the, you know the early 90s, Harlem went through neglect and uh, gang violence, uh, the yeah. crack epidemic, and 
you have the early 90s, the African immigrants that started moving into abandoned buildings and automatically those buildings start appreciating in value, started African immigrants start opening restaurants and, yeah. and opening uh, um, uh, uh, cab taxis, uh, businesses and running them. So Harlem becomes appealing. Yeah. So African immigrants have uh, contributed uh, immensely to capital and economically to making Harlem really now be, I want to say, a second renaissance. Yeah. I tried to watch some of your um, content on YouTube, but it's all French, so I'm just like... Oh yeah, translated. But it's so cute. I, I, I was, I was looking. I was like, "This is Harlem," and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, "This needs to be translated. I need to understand this. This is so yeah, good." I, I will. But I yeah, read between the lines. I was still watching, though. I'm like, mm-hmm. "Oh my gosh!" Uh, the guy who got into a taxi in the toupee left the bags. Yes. <laughs> yes. So for anybody, please, if you understand French, go to his YouTube channel. Uh, I think you can ju- you can just look up Dr. Sawadogo. Bukari Sawadogo is there. All the contents is there. But it's really it, funny. It's really yeah, funny. Yeah, the website is called in French, Aventure Africa. It's called in French, uh, you know, African Adventure in New York. Yeah. And, um, I, just, I just, you know, because the two uh, protagonists are actual... The, Burkina Faso were really they were voted um, best actors of the year two years in a row. So they came to New York, oh, nice. and since New York can make you very anonymous and be very brutal, uh, you know, came to New York very tough. So they got in touch with me. I'm like, I'm not super rich, so I don't have money, <laughs> so you know, to make a big movie. But at least, and also at the time, they just arrived and the couldn't speak English, so it's French. So I'm like, you know what? Let's do web series and you'll speak French and just draw on your own experience as uh, newcomers to New York trying to, you know, it's navigate so it. It's so funny. Yes. The, the, the cab scene, I'm just like, yeah, that's very real. And he's like, yeah, how much? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was dying. I was like, oh my God. So how did you get into animation? African animation. Animation is my new frontier. My new frontier ah. in the sense that how I got into it is um, my second book is a textbook on African uh, film studies. So on doing research, I came across uh, an article you know, on African animation. And I'm like, oh, this... I'm, this is very new because you only it's, it's one of the field subfield that is you know less less explored. So and I started digging deeper and I found that this is the, and why I have an animation festival because I want to tell a story. I want to tell a story about the encounter about the meeting between Africa and the diaspora and uh, animation uh, animated uh, movies animated series are one of the way that can foster uh, that conversation I I think it it attracts a lot of um, people when it comes to animation it's not so uh, you don't get lost into the actor 
I think you you get lost into the story when it's animation. And yeah. I, I appreciate animation. I'm I, I love animation. So I, I can't wait to see a lot of your stuff. You have anything out for animation or no? No, 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 no. Animation, you know, is the festival and uh, uh, I will be on sabbatical this year. So I'm working furiously on the next edition of a festival. Nice. Yeah. Where? It's going to yeah. be in New York? Yes. New York, yes. Oh, nice. Shoot us the dates. We'll support and we'll post on social media whenever so you're ready. Okay. Thank you in advance. Yes. Anything you want to share about uh, African cinema? Like, where do you see it going? Because there are a lot of people that are um, amazing creators in Africa. I think what they are lacking is, first of all, the internet is just, I don't know. Uh, in my country, I just found out we have more than 70 podcasters, content mm-hmm. creators in I think one of their challenges is the internet. It's not like here, you have it in your house and over there it's bundles and bundles. Um, for somebody who's trying to make a film or a movie, whatever, or a series, where do you see that changing in the future? Because I think South Africa is like top and then Nigeria, I don't know what type of internet they use, but it seems to be working out for them. African cinema for me is kind of at a crossroad because um, we have the technological innovation and development which has opened up uh, opportunities in terms of production. You don't have to, you know, be super rich to get a high-end camera. You know, you can get, you know, some camera, I want to say, you know, professional or semi-professional and make a good movie. The same thing for editing, mm. the same thing for distribution. There's, you know, so you have these opportunities um, that the technology has helped open up the, the potential. But at the same time, also, you have um, how distribution can be done in a way that it is it create and foster sustainable local film industries. So as of now, so on one hand, a lot of potential where everybody can just go make a movie and just, you know, put it on the different platforms. Yeah. But the younger generation. But at the same time, is, you know, what are the ways that you can monetize this content for yourself, you know, you know, so that you can make a living, you know, for yourself, but also beyond yourself in your country or region. So what is, what are the, uh, the opportunities that this uh, technology, uh, technology has translated into sustainable, uh, local film industry to make it very concrete? You have, um, Maybe I will get, you know, okay, wrap some fabrics. You have, <laughs> you have, you know, the big, you know, okay, giants. Uh, I will take the example of Netflix, you know, got to start, you know, has a very strong interest, uh, in the continent and has entered in the country, continent, uh, through a co-production agreement yeah. or simply agreement to buy content and, and also, you, you know, okay, for some countries, you can have access directly to Netflix on the continent. Yeah. Yes. 
but has that translated into sustainable local film industry development? Mm. No, no. As if you, you know, we're, we're, we're just tapping into uh, the opportunities that is uh, right now on the continent and just extracting the resources and just going. I know, you know, Netflix, uh, I think back in January, will launch a million dollar scholarship uh, to give out to uh, film and media uh, students. I think they started in Southern Africa and the plan is to expand to uh, the rest of the continent. Uh, but a million dollars is like, you know, just a drop in the bucket and yeah. just training, uh, I would say, human resources or just training the students, that's good. But I think why not uh, open up uh, opportunities uh, for uh, Africans, the film industry, you know, big at the national level to get some of the expertise so that they can start building their own, you know, okay, local film industries. If it's just to say, hey, uh, Nancy, I'm here. I would like you, you know, to produce this content and this is the money. You produce and you make money for yourself. And even yeah. for yourself, the opportunity will be gone. You're not sure that it will come back in one or 10 years. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, I'm just the case of Netflix, but we can expand it to uh, HBO, the other, uh, you know, this online streaming giants. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, wow. No, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask this question because of so many brilliant people that are working on the continent. And I think the resources and the finance portion of it is what's lacking in order for them to be successful, like maybe to get to the Hollywood uh, level. But there are a lot of brilliant people on the continent. Yes, that's where I think uh, maybe, maybe this is just one, you know, suggestion. Maybe if we um, we have uh, more joint ventures between uh, African directors and African Americans uh, uh, directors or stakeholders in cinema, maybe it can also give African cinema a boost. Because uh, if we, you know, in few couple of weeks, you will see the release of uh, the Woman King. I can't wait. I cannot <laughs> wait. I, I'm, yeah, I'm but, looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, the release of Woman. Yeah, the Woman King. Yeah, I'm not. You know, I don't want to say you know I'm being you know you know don't touch Africa, but I'm just you know the story is really from the continent, and the continent belongs to you know you know those born. I see where you're going with that. <laughs> Yes, but I'm saying that okay, if you know, okay, if uh, the diaspora see the, uh, the potential and can come and make blockbuster movies, I think that we can, if we cannot do it on ourselves, maybe we can align ourselves with them. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we talk about Woman King, but you know, the same thing for Black Panther, you know, and then you know, the sequel that's coming, yeah. and we see that how the whole world embraced those movies. Yeah. So it's not like in terms of potential, we don't have a potential, we don't have a stories. It's simply that we don't have, um, we are not in the the, the studio system 
we're not really connected to the uh, studio system. I'm talking about Hollywood enough yeah. Yeah. to get uh, the type of money to make it to make those movies to promote it. Because, I agree. yeah, because so far I think uh, so far. Uh, those the founders, I can you know I can name them. I'm even on one commission for you know for funding film for most of the continent. But they're very few. They're very few. It's like two or three. Oh, and two or I'm three. Talk- we have fifty four countries. No, I'm talking for at least for French speaking Africa. I know where you can go and get really good money. Doctor, how about the rest of us that speak English, that speak other languages, Swahili? How we get those funding? No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. That because we have different parts of funding, you know. If you, you know, I'm talking about the multilateral, where you, you know, where you have you can get good money. Yeah. But otherwise, you have a national level. You have a national film fund that will, you know, okay, uh, disperse money for filmmakers. But sometimes the pot is not large enough to really help even two good films. I'm talking of good feature length. Okay. So, you know, so filmmakers are are compelled to go to multilateral organization that you know have a big budget. So, and if you are 200, you know, you know, applying for you know fund and they fund you, you know, this time around. I think you keep keep coming back. Yeah, it, it uh, it's it's not going anywhere. And which is you know the model for uh, has been the model for 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 many countries. Which is uh, you have uh, the state state funding. Yeah, and then you know it evolve into uh, private funding. You know from private sources. I think that's where. Uh, Nollywood is uh, regarded as a, a very innovative model where you have it, it's really gra- grew from grassroots level and then develop their own way of producing and uh, distributing, which kind of you know gives us an idea of how film industry can come from the local level and move to the status of, I would say, minor, transnational or global cinema. That's, yeah. you know, model. I know, I know, you know, the Nollywood has its detractors, but also you have to recognize that it presents a different model. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they have quite a following. I, I, I've been watching Nollywood movies since I was back home, since I was young. Like, it was a big to-do. And once a new movie came around we were buying those DVDs bootlegs whatever it was we we were excited to see someone who looks like us on TV and no matter what they were doing whether it was screaming or uh, showcasing what like witchcraft wise or whatever it is that they were showcasing on TV but as long as they looked like us it was just like wow this is really great um so I think a lot of us in the diaspora would love to see more of that, like people who look like us, who are Africans. Um, we love Hollywood movies. I mean, we, we take from those, uh, some of it is taken from what Hollywood is producing. But at the end of the day, I think Africa stays to the core, representing what Africa is. And we want to make sure that it stays that way instead of people traveling from uh, 
you know, Burkina Faso to come here to learn what filming is. Maybe we can provide those resources to to them in a way in the in the countries where they are filming or want to learn or creating content. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice, nice. That's, yeah, that's why I think that uh, South African uh, show marks is uh, you know doing something interesting, interesting in that uh, you have you know the content that yeah. I've seen you know the content that I don't understand, but I'm fine with it. You know, content in local languages that are you know distributed. You know, that's a very interesting approach. Yeah, I know it's it, it's great. I've been watching South Africa on TV as well, like since I was young. I've always enjoyed, it. even when I don't understand, same thing like you. I can read between the lines if they are speaking Zulu or whatever language they are speaking. Sometimes mm-hmm. they even have the words in English, mm-hmm. yeah, subtitles, and it's it's great. You can follow. But again, a lot of us want to see people that look like us on TV. Like Lupita Nyango, for for example, when we see her, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's it's great. And she's representing. Uh whether it's in Hollywood or in Africa, uh filming an African movie, which is great. So it's we need that. Hollywood, we need your help. <laughs> <laughs> But we have to count on ourselves first. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like um teach us how to fish. That's it. Yeah, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give anybody who's in your shoes right now? They want to come and get their PhD. They want to come here to learn filming. What advice would you give someone who is in your shoes? Okay, true. If you you want to come uh, in the US to do a PhD, um I will say um the advice is that You have also to apply for uh, funding usually, but what is very good about U.S. Uh, universities that at the PhD level, if they admit you, most likely they will, you know, give you funding because uh, the kind of implicit or uh, practice has been to admit only a number of students that can support on a scholarship. Got it. So that's uh, that's something to to know about, and also uh, to re- to really add the project your project. Why do you want to have a PhD? To, to say, what do you want to do with your PhD? Do you want to stay, you know, okay, you know, okay, in the US or in the global north, or do you plan going back? Because that will have kind of an impact on. Or do you want to just, you know, be a self-employed, you know, businessman? That that will be a businesswoman. That will have an impact on the field of study that you will, you know, choose. Because mm. yeah, because if you're staying or you plan to stay, you have to pick a field where you you feel at the time that you might be competitive. Yeah. And also that you, you might be able to get a job where that will sponsor you. Uh, for green card, or even, or even you know, for H one B. So that's yeah, that's part is uh, you have to do that homework. And uh, for cinema, I think um, 
for cinema, I would say just learn if you, for me, film is a universal tool of telling stories. Yeah. But should you come to you know the US or any other place, yeah, they will teach you the basics, but also you know give you a lot of information about their own cinema. So it will be up to you to uh, develop these discerning skills and say, okay, this is information I got, but you know what? I'm once I get my degree, I'm out in the professional world. I'm going to focus on this because they give you the skills. Now it's up to you to develop it in a direction that you think uh, can make a, a big difference. Well, well said. Um, you've been here since 2006. Uh, you've gone to college. You're now a professor, but you stick to uh, cinema and you're a writer you've shared a lot on writing and uh, your book which is anybody who's just joined us africans in harlem an untold new york story lovely <laughs> it's a great book i advise i recommend for you guys to uh, check it out buy the book let's support our guests and it's just all around really informative insightful on what Harlem has become and what was of Harlem. Have you found your concrete pastures out of all of this? I will say that okay, if it's if the question is the home, um, I think it's where simply where you feel at ease and where uh, you feel that you are making the most contribution you know, according to your skills and your God-given you know, talent. So for me, yeah, the U.S., but also uh, back home. So I'm always on the continent too. So for yeah. me, I, yes, for me, I see myself between the two. Nice. No, it, I mean, if you are able to do it, because not everybody can go once you're an immigrant, but if you are able to and afford it, even if you're able to, but yeah, the tickets, expensive. Very expensive right now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, people stay here 20 years, uh, 30 years, not able to go home. It's not to their, you know, wanting, but it's just the situation. Each person is different. But I applaud you for going back and forth. That's really great. Because then you don't forget about home. You're not so removed from mm -hmm. home, uh, which is great. And um, what do you live by? What motivates you? What inspires you to do all of these things that you do uh, every day? What wakes you up? What keeps you going? What keeps me going, I think something that, like I said earlier, I lived with my grandparents, what my grandfather told me, because I remember and he passed away and before he passed oh, away, he was oh, you know, oh. reminding me that and we were both laughing because when I was little, every single morning, he will, you know, get a whip, run after me before for me to go to school. I don't want to, I did not want to go to school. So he has done that for two years, every morning, chasing me with a stick because I don't want to go to, to school. He was um, a second world war veteran. So he knew wow. uh, the power of education. So, and he told me, yeah, he told me that 
you know, once you have knowledge, nobody can take knowledge from you. Nobody. For me, it's the pursuit, the pursuit of knowledge, which wow. is in writing book, I'm still pursuing knowledge. Uh, and um, that's really, you know, for me, I feel that I'm making a contribution to uh, the world, uh, to Africa. Like I said, that we need more voices uh, on issues affecting the continent. And also, if I want to be more pragmatic, being in the context of a U.S. Uh, university, um, early, early on in my career, uh, I would say a mentor told me, he said, Bukhari, you know what? You can publish your way out of anywhere. Wow. That's no, I'm saying that if you are in the US university, let's say yeah. that you are at one university, you want to go, you want to move up, you want to go to, yeah, that's if you have to publish. Yeah. yeah. So, be, yeah, you have to publish because that becomes almost our business card. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. If you want, I want to be more pragmatic. But for yeah. me, is the, the model you know that my grandfather gave me is like, you know, you have knowledge with you. Nobody can take it away from you. So people might dislike you. Whatever you have it with you, and you can make a difference. So. Well said. Well said. I can talk to you forever. There's so much in your book that I can go through, and there's so much your of the content that you have on. Uh, YouTube and a lot of the things that you post on um, LinkedIn. Uh, for anybody who's listening, your story has been great. Thank you so much for sharing. Please let's support again Dr. Bukhari uh, Sawadogo on his books that he's written, not just the uh, Africans in Harlem and Untold New York Story. Let's make sure we support him on all his books and future ventures. He posts all of his updates, I think, on LinkedIn. I'll have yes. all your contacts. Just share with us where they can reach you. Everything will be in the show notes, but just share with us on how everybody can reach you. Yeah, I can be reached on LinkedIn. So if you type uh, Dr. Bukaris Awadabel or Pop-Up, and you'll see someone in you know, grinning, smiling, that's me. <laughs> with glasses <laughs> and uh, on, uh, I can also, I'm also on um, Instagram and uh, also on Twitter they've started to be very active uh, yeah and also that's why I saw you actually on Twitter and then I Twitter I okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah on Twitter yeah so on Instagram you know LinkedIn um, Facebook also yes yeah I saw the signing of your book and I was like, oh, yes, Africans. All right, let's do this. <laughs> and I read the book. I was like, oh, wow, this is very interesting. But thank you so much for agreeing to be here. I appreciate you. I know you have a tight schedule. Uh, you taking your time of your uh, travel in France. I appreciate you so much for sharing and for inspiring us, for pouring it to the community. Um, and yeah. I wish for you to come back once you release the other book and we could talk more about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Nancy, and also a pleasure talking to you, uh, dear community members. Thank you so much. See you next time.
that's it for this episode thank you again for lending us your ears it's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer you can continue to support us by liking sharing and following us on our social media pages the links are all in the show notes We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming.